I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome to everybody there. I'm Alex Clark. This is Chris Power. Um, welcome to everyone wherever you are. We already know that people are joining from all around the globe, Chris. Chris has been slightly ruining that by when we've been being told where everyone is. And he says, oh, I've got some <laughs> friends there. You're not supposed to say that. It's probably just your adoring public. So, you know, it's not just your mates. Right. Um, right. I'm, I'm very, very excited that we're going to be talking about A Lonely Man tonight, which is just one of my favourite books this year so far. I know it's only the 1st of April, but still, I don't mean to Danny with fake praise. You are, of course, the author <laughs> of your short stories, Mothers, um, and this is your, therefore, your first novel. Now, I would normally do an introduction there, but you kind of wrote it for me because the book starts with two men meeting at a bookshop reading, a bookshop that's possibly similar to the London Review of Books bookshop i think it's got that sort of vibe um and they your our hero has gone to see who is a writer has gone to see a writer he sort of likes may like uh giving a reading and he is introduced thus um the moderator says thank you for everyone for coming to hear from one of the breakout voices of year uh, one of the most exciting young writers at work in britain and indeed all of europe Today, so you're, you're setting it out there quite hard, and indeed all of Europe. Um, so I felt I ought to use that as an introduction for you. <laughs> Great, I'm not going to complain. Well, I must say, then there is a short reading, and I, I enjoyed it. Then the, the introducer uh, reads out a string of adjectives from book reviews, but your book was published today, so we haven't seen those book reviews. But there have been lots of advanced words of praise for the books. But I love the moment that the young man writer then reads from his book and, and Robert, our hero, says, Dallow was talking about columns of light falling onto a forest's floor. And I thought that seemed to me like just the kind of writing you don't want to do. <laughs> that didn't seem to me that seems sort of slightly edgy to me slightly unpraiseful is that fair uh well i think it's fair that it's i mean from robert's perspective robert's there in a, in a sort of he's quite embittered he's sort of uh jealous really of this of this younger much more praised writer who he who he um 
Yeah, as all writers do, writers are people who look at, you know, other people who do what they do and and envy and hate them for it rather than sort of, uh, you know, finding a sense of community. Um, and I guess he's he's seeing that the the road that he wants to be on that this that this other guy is on. Oh, but although, you know, Robert's had a book published and there'll be other writers who are looking at Robert and feeling exactly the same thing that he's feeling towards Dallow. So there's a there's a sort of serpent eating its tail element to it, I suppose. Yes, there they are at one of these interminable readings, the light will be we've been to many of them, at which Robert describes himself as not really able to concentrate. You're always looking around for the drinks trolley, etc. etc. And he has also met this slightly weird and bumptious man who is very clearly drunk and rather brilliantly, in my view, has taken miniatures of vodka along to the reading. And this is our basically our introduction to the setup of the novel. A writer, a British writer, living in Berlin with his wife and two children, stuck on his book, meets this chaotic, slightly charismatic, also slightly seedy character. That's about right, isn't it? That's it. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. Yeah. I mean, their their sort of relationship is. It's not really where the idea for the book started, but it did become the the dominant force in it quite quickly i think i guess it's kind of also always the case that what you what you start writing is is very rarely what you finish writing in my experience anyway it always sort of transforms along the way and you're kind of like clinging on to an idea for dear life for a while where where it sort of rides where it wants to and, and you you sort of find yourself in this new space and then that's when the real writing begins in a way where you're like okay now i know what this is and i can and i can sort of shape it there's a sort of chaotic period before that i think so with this book which i think you're going to give us a, a reading from after that and we'll chat about book about mothers about all sorts of other things wherever the conversation takes us we love you in the audience in the virtual audience we wish you could see we could see you but we can't um but you can uh Send us a question in the Q&A box and we'll come to some of those questions towards the end of the hour. But this is essentially the idea. Was, was a writer always at the heart of the book when it was taking shape? Did you always know it would be about a writer? In fact, sort of two writers in a way. No, it wasn't. It actually started with um, with a sort of grim fascination I had with um, Alexander Litvinenko and things related to that, like this this you know, this assassination that happened in London in 2006 and was a huge news story because it had this strange, um, you know, performative aspect to it. You know, it was all it was all sort of in public. You know, Litvinenko mm -hmm. was poisoned with polonium, this uh, radiation, um, and weirdly was in a position where he could kind of work to to solve his own murder while he was still alive to an extent. He he knew he was dying. All the doctors knew he was dying, you know, once they realized what this agent was. Um, but he still had, you know, a couple of weeks of, of life left and was interviewed by, you know, Scotland Yard police policemen and stuff. Um, and that was very strange and fascinating. And many people were, you know, sort of captivated by it. Um, and I sort of stayed in touch with that case, just as something I was I was interested in. And and there were sort of repeated, you know, the British government didn't really want to point any fingers um, 
And so it was a, a, a case that stayed in the news because Marina Litvinenko, his, his widow, was sort of um, campaigning for, a, for an inquest into the investigation and into the killing. Um, but it's just something I'd, I'd check in with occasionally, you know, when, a, when an update occurred. But then a few years after that, I was working around Piccadilly and I would sometimes go and get my lunch at this um, branch of Itsu, you know, this fast food sushi place. And somehow, I can't remember how, like reading a news report or, or something about Litvinenko, I discovered that this this had been the branch that was his, his favorite restaurant in London. And he went there often and he actually went there on both occasions that Lugavoy and Kovtun, these people tried to poison him the first time they had a meeting with him and he had this cup of radioactive tea in front of him for half an hour and he never drank it and then he took them there afterwards and then a few weeks later they came back and were successful in you know getting him to drink the tea but before that meeting at a uh, Hyde Park hotel he went to this Itsu again and met this uh Italian ex-secret service guy who actually said, you know, you're on a you're on a Kremlin kill list because of stuff he'd said about Anna Politkovskaya, this reporter who'd been gunned down outside her apartment in Moscow. Um, and there was something about being in that space and realizing this was that, you know, Itsu that uh, after um, after Litvinenko died and they started like searching for polonium and realizing what they were looking for, they found, you know worrying levels of radiation there and it was shut for for months and fully like stripped out and refurbed and stuff um and it was just odd you know this story that was so um fantastical in a way when we follow these stories they're they're like sort of thrilling in a way that is maybe not particularly wholesome because there was a you know a death of a man with a wife and child at the heart of it but there's something sort of like i said grimly fascinating about them and they seem so unreal but being in that space, it was a strange crossing of sort of mundanity with this with this very unusual, fantastical, thrilling story. And it sort of collapsed the gap between those two things in a way I found really fascinating. And again, it just sort of sat there in the back of my mind, I guess, until a, a few years after that, I read a, a long form piece of journalism about about 14 deaths that had happened on British soil of Russian nationals and British nationals, oligarchs and money men and lawyers and um, fixers. And all these cases had been under investigated or evidence had gone missing or crime scenes hadn't been photographed. And the reporter, Heidi Blake, and she had a whole team of reports, but she was the lead reporter. You know, her thesis was that all to do with sort of... Um, high levels of corruption and unwillingness to sort of um, put Russia in the dock for sort of political and economic reasons. And something about this piece sort of connected with my previous interests in that regard. And that, that was when I really started to wanting, wanting to write about it. And I didn't really know the way. And at first I thought of someone who was involved in that world. I didn't really want someone who was sort of implicated. Like I wanted an innocent in a sense. And that that's actually where the idea for the for the writer, you know, a ghostwriter, someone who can legitimately be in that world and, and explore it without being of it. That that was where where it really started germinating, I think. Well, the book kind of becomes about a ghostwriter of a ghostwriter in a certain way. Will you just give us a little reading that kind of introduces these two sort of central characters to us? Yeah, sure. I'll just read the first uh, the first couple of pages of the book. 
They met in St. George's, in Colvitz-Keats, both reaching for the same book. Sorry, they said together, drawing back their arms. Please, Robert said. After you, said the other man. His speech was slurred. He stank of alcohol. Don't worry, Robert said, turning away. I've got it. I just wanted to look at the cover. It was an edition he hadn't seen before. He would wait until the man had gone. He heard a cough behind him, then a gruff, here. He turned and saw the man smiling a little stupidly, angling the cover towards him. He looked at it and nodded. Thanks, he said. The man flipped the book over and studied the back. Robert watched him sway. Any good, the man said. Most people like the later stuff better, but I think it's great. I like everything he did, though, so maybe you shouldn't trust me. The man made no response, just stared at the back of the book. He yawned widely and scratched his cheek. Robert wondered if he could even read the words he was looking at. He died about ten years ago. The man grunted and opened the book. Robert went back to scanning the shelves. He wasn't really looking for anything, just killing time before the reading started. St. George's was a 20-minute walk from his apartment, and over the last couple of years since moving to Berlin, he had become a regular there. Sometimes he brought his daughters and set them up with colouring books on one of the cracked leather couches in the back room while he browsed the second-hand books in the front. Tonight they were at home with a babysitter, and Karin was going to meet him for dinner after the reading. She had suggested recently that they make an effort to spend more time with each other, away from the children. Would everyone take their seats, please, a bookseller said. Robert moved towards the back room along with a few other browsers. Feeling a hand on his shoulder, he turned and saw the drunk, still clutching the same book. What's the event? the man said. They were about the same age, Robert thought, with a shared accent, London or nearby. Sam Dallow. The man looked back at him, expressionlessly. He's a writer. He's talking about his new novel. I'm a writer the man said. Great, said Robert. The last thing you want, isn't it, somebody, you're, you're there at a reading and tell somebody you're a writer and they say, oh, me too. So it's, it's presumably every writer's work. He's come to listen to a writer and now there's another writer trying to muscle in on the act. But he is oh, a writer. I'm, I'm, you don't mind. You're I'm all right not nicer than Robert. <laughs> <laughs> now, Robert, as you say, we'll, we'll investigate Robert a bit more, but he's not always that nice, although we do root for him quite a lot. But uh, the point about Patrick, who he meets, is that he is a drunk and he is kind of a bit unreliable and a bit wild and very socially odd. Um, but he has this backstory, as you were explaining. He has been hired uh, to write a kind of book on behalf, a sort of, I don't know, a kind of exculpatory book in a way, a kind of you know, Jacques Hughes sort of book uh, for a Rus Russian oligarch, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. I mean, the, the nature of that book is actually always in question. I don't think um, Sergei Vanyashin, this this oligarch who hires him, wants to, yeah, wants to write a, some sort of Jacques book to, about against Putin. Uh, this guy was a was a sort of um, he was a sort of second tier oligarch. There's also questions about exactly how wealthy he is but he had a radio station in russia and he had a, a small but respected newspaper that were critical of putin and then he had to leave russia um and he wants to, when he hires patrick he he describes this this book he wants to write but 
over subsequent meetings, as Robert learns via Patrick, it does seem to change and shift. And Van Yashin seems like someone who sort of acts on whims. He keeps lots of people on retainer. So like just paying the money, like in case he wants to make use of them. Um, so yeah, the, the, the exact nature of the book and what it will finally consist of and, and what it, you know, it never quite comes to pass, but is, is always in, in, in some doubt. Well, I guess the, the kind of exact nature of the book that you've written is also in doubt. And that's one of the kind of games that you play with us, because there is this sort of thrillerish element to it, because the guy who's going to be writing the book about the oligarch, Patrick, fears for his life. He thinks he's big, but we don't really know whether that's true or whether he's just a bit crazy and weird and unreliable. Uh, and then it becomes something very different about Robert and what he might make of this meeting. And it strikes me you could sort of think of this book as a, as a kind of thriller, as certainly as a mystery or as a suspense novel. Um, but how useful was it to you to think in terms of kind of crossing all those genre? It wasn't useful. Really. I mean, I, I didn't really think about it in those terms. I definitely thought about it in terms of, of wanting to maintain and sustain tension throughout. But I think that's that's something I'm kind of always interested in. I think that was something I, I was interested in, in the stories in Mothers, which mm. are very not, you know, thriller-ish. Um, mm. But obviously I was aware, I was conscious of the fact that, you know, if you're going to talk about oligarchs and, and assassination and the FSB and the GRU and, you know, all these, all that, as soon as you're bringing like acronyms in, you're, you're, you know, you're definitely in, you're definitely in different territory. And I think that it was useful to the extent that, in in the form of the book or how I wanted the book to, to move the rhythms of the book, it was sort of useful to think in those terms. But at the same time, it wasn't useful because I sort of, you know, along the, for a long period about, I was sort of panicking about this book in, in some regards. And I would suddenly, you know, I'd be just writing every day and concentrating on, you know, the next sentence, the next word, the next piece of punctuation, whatever. And you're down on the page and it is like, uh, you know, you're, you're, the sentences are like mazes you're moving through or moving around. And you don't necessarily always have that like macro view of it. Mm. But suddenly I'd be like, and this happened for like a year, I'd be walking along or I'd be getting dressed or doing whatever. And suddenly the thought would just arrive like a, like a truck hitting me. It'd be just like, what if it's shit? Like, what, what if it's like really bad? <laughs> what if it doesn't work? And I was, you know, the more I thought about that, it was always to do with these elements that were, I guess, the most thrillerish. Like, I don't think it's coincidental, looking back on it now, that all the elements of the story that Robert is is most doubtful about are probably the ones that I sort of agonised most over about trying to get right and worrying that I that I might not get them right and sort of worked hardest that. So I think there was a sort of mirroring there between between me and him. And what, how would you have known if it had been, I mean, I saw an exchange that you had today on the, the great sort of, uh, I suppose it's the way that sometimes writers can display their, their various insecurities, but you were chatting on Twitter today and you shared a, a message that the critic Leo Robson had sent you and you said you'd sent it to him there's a reply to something you'd sent to him a couple of years ago where you said this is a total fucking disaster and he'd said no you've already written the book you can do it again something of that 
nature. But when you say, did you actually think this book is just not going to exist? I can't, this is not going to come to anything. Uh, it's a weird, there's a strange and constant like doubleness. And I think, I think most writers, maybe all artists, I'm, I'm not sure, quite possibly, but certainly all writers are a kind of, you know, this, this worrying or turbulent blend of egotism and crippling self-doubt. It's like, I'm brilliant because I'm going to spend two years like doing this one thing that I'll get like no feedback on for like at least a year, uh, but it'll, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. You know, you've got to have some sort of like self-belief to do that in the first place. But at the same time, you kind of like, you know, you read 10 wonderful reviews and then you read one random comma on, comment on Amazon and you're like, I don't know. It just, it just, you know, worms, worms its way into you somehow. So I think that, that, yeah, I was I was very worried about the book for a long time. But at the same time, and during the same day, and during the same writing period, I could be completely not worried about the book as well. And those two things were kind of existing on on parallel tracks. And sometimes they sort of merged, and sometimes they split apart again. Well, you know, I think we feel some of that anxiety coming through in this portrait of Robert, <laughs> who is a novelist at the, at the heart of the book who, well, I mean, I'm quite sorry for his wife. I think his wife is quite sorry for herself sometimes. She's always telling him to buck his ideas up. It is noticeable that his main response to sitting down with a day of writing in front of him is to go onto his balcony and roll cigarettes. And I especially liked the bit where his agent says in an email, how's the novel coming? And he writes a kind of tortured reply and then deletes it all. It's coming together. And so this is, I mean, he is just not writing it, is he? I don't think, you know, you were clearly more generative than that. But he's just not writing his book at all, is he? He's not. I mean, he's 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 stuck. And I think, yeah, I, I heard someone talking about this yesterday. I can't remember where, but not trusting um, writers who, who, maybe I shouldn't say that. It's a bit, it's a bit pejorative. Talking about me, I think that you know I find I find writing like very difficult, and I'm not I'm not one of those people who like oh don't read my book it's terrible it's terrible I'm really proud of this book I think it's I think it's really good you know other people will have different opinions but in the process of getting there it, it's 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 like quite a painful process and you have to revisit it you know 10, 20, 30, 40 times and sometimes those experiences are joyous and sometimes they are absolutely nightmarish to you and you don't want to put that on other people like people you live with or whatever you know you try you try not to and sometimes you do and and hopefully you get sort of called up on it because everyone has has you know crappy days at work um and that's that's part of it but i do think yeah i find writing very difficult and and, and i'm not i'm not one of those people who kind of goes why well, I have to write every day. If I don't write every day, I feel, you know, like just completely, you know, beside myself because um, I wouldn't say I like actively look for reasons not to write, but I'm, but I'm, you know, there are certain <laughs> stages, there are certain stages I get to where I'm a lot happier. Like, I love editing. I can edit, you know, till, till the cows come home, but um, that blank page can, yeah, sometimes be joyous. Often it's a, it's a, it's a snowy waste in which your, your doom is, uh, is, in, is enclosed. There is a very a, a very strong sense of watching Robert 
try and fail to write his book, but roll a lot of cigarettes, etc. That when he comes into contact with someone who's saying, you, you don't look now, there's a kind of secret service guy behind us, he probably is going to kill us. This is a really sexy and exciting thing to happen to his life, which for the rest of the time, as long as I'm not writing, consists of quite boring childcare duties and domestic negotiation against the backdrop of having come to live in Berlin, the novel is set in Berlin, and that's obviously quite exciting, but it's not really available to him because he's sort of mired in the world of bringing up two small kids with his wife in a relatively kind of small flat, presumably not inexhaustible funds. And that seems to me a big part of it, that actually when you're sitting down and you're trapped in your own mundane life, the sexiness of men with guns and oligarchs and assassinations is just too much of a lure. And I thought that was kind of something you were sort of getting at in the book, why we're just fascinated by these stories. Why perhaps you got fascinated by Litvinenko and Itsu. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that sounds like a sidekick all of a sudden. Um, I actually realised what I just said was, your <laughs> life is so boring that you got really into it. And I didn't mean it like that. I think you know what I mean. <laughs> It's fine, Alex. How do I leave this meeting? Um, <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, but I think, I think that's true. But and uh, but I think he's thinking about it in the sense that most people think about it, which is as a as a story, as like a like a ripping yarn or whatever. He's not. Mm -hmm. um, if he if he immediately thought what Patrick was saying was was really true to the extent he always believes some of it. But the, to the extent that, you know, oh, and these people are coming after me and I'm in danger. If, if he really thought that through and really believed it, I don't think he'd, he'd act as, as, as he does. I don't think he'd find that so sort of sexy and exciting, as you say. I think it's because that stuff does uh, exist on a, on a news program or on, or, on the, or on the, you know, newspaper front page or wherever it is. There's a sense... Yeah, that it happens like over there, you know, like it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't touch him. And he's he's someone who's too busy to be in a thriller. You know, he's got kids to pick up from from the nursery and he's got, you know, a wife to, to try and hang on to. And, you know, he can't he can't do that thing in, in sort of some thrillers where where normal life gets cleared away, like quite quickly. Sometimes mm. you know, skillfully by the writer and sometimes more clumsily by the writer. But people in thrillers sometimes or often realize they're in a thriller quite quickly and that that becomes like the whole thing like the situation is engineered so that that it's you know the, the plot sort of becomes dominant but certainly robert is is resistant to that in a, in a way that i think a lot of people would be i mean partly because these are sort of like corner of the eye things that you can you can write on <laughs> or you can make excuses for you know, when, when weird things happen in our own lives, whatever they might be, we normally rationalize them, you know, until until we no longer can. You know, we rationalize them. And most of the time they are, you know, there is an explanation and you just sort of forget about them. But um, that's not, a, not always possible. But it's interesting. I mean, we were talking about genre earlier and, and that kind of idea of somebody who gets sucked into something that they simply don't understand because they are quite excited by the thrill of it, the glamour of it the sort of promise it seems to have to liberate them from whatever jam. In this case, you know, this is going to be an interesting subject to write about. 
Um, and then it is far too hot to handle. I mean, that is quite a sort of staple of noir writing, isn't it? And I know we were talking a, a while back and I said I thought, um, I mean, I was really overexcited. I just read the book and I really liked it. And I said, do I think there's a bit of Highsmith about it? And you were very, you said, no, no, that's too much. But I did think that because there is this sense of these kind of doubles, these two characters who stalk each other around this kind of cityscape with very uncertain motives and with a great kind of sense of not really knowing how these forces and desires are going to kind of play out for them. And I thought that was something that was really powerful in the novel, that they just didn't really know what they were doing. Is that well, fair? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's fair. Yeah, that, that is fair. I, I, you know, I guess that's, um, I often don't know what I'm doing, or I certainly feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And I think, yeah, there is a sort of, uh, fumbling or uncertain quality to them and the Highsmith uh, comparison is very complimentary and, and to throw other you know big names around I was certainly thinking about um, writers like Roberto Bolaño and Patrick Modiano um, you know when I started they were a couple of names I sort of wrote down in a sort of throwback to, to school days when I'd you know write band names on my bag and stuff but um i was i was writing them down as, as kind of you know tutelary spirits of the book and they are writers who who employ genre but in kind of like a unheimlich kind of way you know it's like detective novels but but make it weird or whatever you know it's like it's got a it's got a strange um twisted element to it and and probably sort of it's not it's not so interested in in resolution um it's more interested in the establishment of the mystery and the problem and and identity within that and that and that was sort of they were they were useful for me to not really like read while i was writing the book i sort of avoided that but just to think of the atmospheres their work presents to me was a useful sort of guide for me it also seems kind of important to, to me, to the, to the book, that it is set in Berlin, where this play, this person is is not from, where the other you know, the other writer Patrick is not from, uh, in these spaces that are kind of almost zoned. You know, there there are places that people go to and come back from, and big streets to cross, and there's a kind of amazing sort of running scene at one point that's kind of filled with danger and jeopardy and fear. And it is important that nobody is at home, that none of the none of the people that you're writing about are from there, isn't it? And it seems to be that sort of position between the domestic setting and this kind of completely sort of anonymous city to which no one belongs around it. You couldn't have yeah, set it here, yeah. could you? No, I, th I think, yeah, that to establish that sort of sense of dislocation is is quite important. I I think a lot of people feel <laughs> dislocated. I think people always feel like they're on the outside of things, whoever they are, probably. Like, I think there are very few people who think, like, this is it. I am at the centre of, like, you know, everything. This is – I'm perfectly <laughs> positioned. It just doesn't happen. And I think in fiction that that's situating people in places like that can be useful or I, or I find it quite powerful because for someone to be an outsider – in the place where they grew up or in the place that, that they, you know, have, have lived in for a long time, that it almost 
their outsiderness becomes like, like the overriding trait of their personality, I suppose, with it, as a fictional character. But if someone's you know just moved to a city or they've you know gone on holiday and they're in a new place, then you have that dislocation kind of right there from the off, and it doesn't it doesn't sort of overpower things. It's almost like the foundation that you that you build the the story on, and and for in a in a sort of realistic or practical sense, Berlin appealed because it is a place where say Patrick's like running away he doesn't really know where he's going to go this is like a sort of first stop for him like he might stay there he, he doesn't know but it is somewhere that certainly over the last sort of 20-25 years someone an English speaker can can go and function pretty easily for, for good or ill you know there's a whole sort of you know it's, Berlin's probably at the front edge of gentrification and all that entails more than any other place on earth but um you know he he, he can be there and 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 yes he's got that heritage as well of yeah being a divided city and and le carre and ambler and whomever and you know those those resonances those those ghosts are kind of present there as well quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You mentioned Le Carre there, and there, there definitely is that that kind of atmosphere, and, and as you say, that sort of, you know, uh, a Brit abroad, two Brits abroad here, but. Having mentioned the, the, the other writers that you did, that, that book at the beginning that, that both characters reach for in the bookshop is Roberto Bolaño's Antwerp, I think, isn't it? Uh, which mm. is in the, in the, not obviously for our, for our incredibly well-read audience now, tonight, but I mean, it's not, I mean, it's quite an obscure reference, isn't it, of a book? Yeah, it is. And, 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 it's not, you know, th that book doesn't sort of unlock anything no, necessarily. No. It's, um, it's, it's. I wanted, uh, you know, I, I liked. I wanted to. I wanted to nod to to him in the text, but the 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 book itself was, yeah. I mean, to be quite honest, I can't actually remember why I chose it to be Antwerp, but uh, <laughs> but that's. <laughs> well, I just assumed it was a kind of little sort of in note to yourself, you know, to put a favourite book in there. But it also seemed to me signpost of the novel trying to look outwards and to say you know this, this is to be situated I suppose in a kind of broader range of reading than just like a, a kind of American noir or a British spy thriller that sort of thing. Yeah well he's he's definitely a, a big writer for me I think the reason I chose that book now remembering their exchange when when you actually when they discuss it it was you know I wanted something that they would sort of disagree about like patrick and robert they're, they're quite different they're very 
similar in some ways and very very distinct in others and it was the kind of book that um you know you could see a a journalist and a, and a fiction writer kind of clashing over because it's very sort of dreamlike and it's sort of it's quite close to poetry um it's very sort of disjointed um uh, or sort of almost disembodied and so yeah they they have this 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 difference of opinion over its over its literary merit um what we haven't the thing that we kind of really need to get to is the business of dealing stories because essentially and i think this i don't want to to spoiler the book in any kind of way but i think that's a fairly sort of clear thing that's going to happen isn't it this writer who's blocked meets another writer with an exciting life well you know what's going to happen and that sense of literary ownership and that sense of actually just stitching someone else up by stealing their material um is a kind of is, is actually a really fun one because we don't know really whether to censure robert or to go you know oh my son have a have a go why not he's not doing anything with it um what did you mean by putting it in there? And would, I mean, would you have done? Would you have said this is too good a story? But if that is, is someone else's story? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> is the Faber lawyer on the on the call? No, no it's just uh, us. You can say anything. It's literally yeah. just us. Well, between you and me, yeah, I I did want to. Well, I say I did want to talk. I don't. I didn't set out. You know, I didn't. I didn't get out my graph paper and say, you know, these are the points I want to, I want to hit. It, it was this, you know, novels are, I think, quite a, um, quite chaotic things, but they naturally absorb, you know, your interests along the way, even though you didn't necessarily think those particular interests were going to, were going to be in the, in the story. But, but yes, once I had these two writers and, and one trying to extract the story from the other along the way, that obviously, raised that question about about ownership of a story the simple idea that someone tells you something that happens to them and you're like oh that's great i'd like to i'd like to write about that and i think there are i think there are ethical ways to do that and i think there are unethical ways to do it and i think it's it's a sort of case by case thing but you know there are definitely things that robert could have quite easily done that would that would have been you know made what he does more acceptable but at the same time, I've got sympathy for him, and that he's, you know, someone who's who's struggling and desperate, and he sees this opportunity. And I think in his mind, he doesn't want to like risk losing it by doing mm. the right thing, by announcing what he wants to do, and kind of asking permission. He's worried that Patrick will just say, "Well, no, I don't want." You know, I'm I'm uncomfortable about the whole thing. I'm sort of, you know, fleeing for my life. Why would I want to sit and tell you the whole story? So. So he goes about it, you know, he extracts it by, he sort of presents himself falsely as a, as a, as a friend, really. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's, yeah, I think, I think it's a vexed question. And, and albeit that part of the story isn't, you know, vexed personally for me, there are other elements in the story that, that are, there's a, there's a, um, a funeral or a viewing that takes place in the book that, that I wanted to talk to people um, about that affected people, you know, uh, and I wanted to talk to them and, and say, you know, I'm writing this and, and you know, tell them. Just, just to explain, because it's a very, it's a very mm. kind of, it's almost a discrete section in the book, if, if such a thing is possible, because obviously it does all 
all the bits of the book talk to each other. But it is a moment when Robert leaves Berlin, comes back to London to go to a funeral, the funeral of a friend. What you're saying, that seems to be to bear relation to, to, to real life. And so that was a that was something that was difficult for you to put in or to feel that kind of legitimacy in putting in. Well, this is the question. I mean, this is the sort of this is the most difficult part to talk about, but also I think the most interesting or most valuable part to talk about, because that's what that gets to the root of it. It's like it wasn't difficult to put in. What was difficult was sort of telling people, sort of telling people involved, like family members of this person that, that I was doing it, that Enjoy I wanted it. to write about it. That's the difficult part, the, the sort of deciding to put it in is where the Graham Greene line about writers having a chip of ice in the heart sort of thing comes into comes into play. You know if you want to write about something, you don't sort of go, oh, I'd like to write about that, but I shouldn't. It's, that's almost like that kicks in later. And then hopefully you do the right thing and you, you talk to people about it if you feel that that's necessary. But the actual decision to write about something, I think, is is quite sort of automatic or there's an element of, of ruthlessness there. I don't know. I'm still figuring it out because I'm like, well, I, that was something I experienced as well. But at the same time, it's it's strange for people. If people are suddenly picking up, you know, a book and reading about something that affected them, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, it's an odd experience and someone's recollection of something is never going to be the same as someone else's, especially if it's, you know, an emotionally powerful event like that. Sure. But just just sort of pushing on that and you might tell me to back off because it does relate to something in your own life. I mean, when you talk about that way of characterising something as an example of the writer's splinter in the heart, uh, which is, you know, is, is a kind of accepted way to talk about these things. But it also slightly elides the fact that maybe you wanted to write about it because it was valuable to you at some kind of emotional level, not just that you thought it would make a good, productive, interesting, valuable scene in a book. And it strikes me that's with that negotiation between that. It's the motive for writing about something that's sometimes the problem, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's interesting because I th I do think yeah when I first wanted to write about it I wanted to write about it because it was an extremely emotional event that that made a you know very deep impression on me but over the course of writing something as as fiction you know it never occurred to me I'm not a memoirist I didn't I didn't ever think oh I'll write this as a you know as a as a non-fiction account of something that happened it was always going to be you know incorporated into fiction and i think that's i think it's the incorporation that that is the bit that i not struggle with but can't quite clarify exactly what's wrong what's right or or gives me pause because once it becomes incorporated then it becomes a different thing anyway it's no longer mm -hmm. it's no longer about sort of you know honoring the truth or or accurately describing that event you, what you're trying to do is make really vital, you know, interesting, great fiction, however you do. So it becomes a kind of an aesthetic thing. And so it, it, it changes its, it changes its nature. And I think you're, 
your willingness to do that in the process of doing that you kind of burn the you burn up the reality that's the that's the fuel you you're yeah. using to generate the fiction and and so it changes your memory you know i spent two and a half years revisiting that scene at various points and so the the my fictional version of it has completely colonized the real event so although the you know the original impulse becomes something quite different by the by the time it's been like i said incorporated into fiction you do touch on this in the book, and we will come to audience questions in about one minute. I just keep thinking of more things I'm desperate to ask you while I have you here, and there's no possibility of <laughs> bumping in in the pub, etc. But um, I wanted to ask you about that bit in, in when Robert's sort of reflecting on the stories that he's written, and he sort of has shown them, he says he's shown them to his parents, and his mother says, you're not supposed to make things up. You're not supposed to write about us. And that, that seems to me where it sort of, touches on now you did write a collection of short stories called mothers and that is always I mean, it's just an emotional word it's always going to make people think of personal experience despite the fact that it's simply a, a noun you know it's always going to make people think it's going to be personal dancing that line is kind of it seems to me one of the things you're sort of interested in yeah i suppose so but i i mean i say i suppose so not not to sort of duck it but because I, I think that's just kind of like hardwired into into fiction anyway. Like, I, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, I mean, you look at the history of the knot, you look at, you know, Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe wanted people to think Robinson Crusoe was a, was a memoir, you know, it was like a real life mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. And that sort of, yeah, that, that sort of, um, the way fiction sits athwart those lines is, it's just in there, whether you're writing something that's, you know, auto-fictional or, or like might nod to the writer's life or whatever the elements are. I think that, you know, if, if fiction's working, then it becomes real, right? For as long as you're like engaged with that book, it generates reality anyway. So I guess the sort of question of what's drawn from life and what isn't drawn from life becomes immaterial. And I suppose that's that, that element of, you know, the writer's approach to it is sort of like the chilling part of it isn't that they're they're happy to use you know real events or other people's experiences it's the fact that they sort of don't see a distinction between the two between the real and and the completely invented they'll you know whatever whatever works together is is mm. is going to satisfy them ultimately as as creators Chris, shall I stop mercilessly grilling you and making you really uncomfortable by asking you which bits you've nicked from your life and ask some of the audience's questions? Um, somebody says, how does it feel? Now, I say somebody because they are actually anonymous, not because I can't be bothered to read their name. How does it feel to know the book is landing on doormats and in people's hands? Is it different to articles being published or when others was published? Yeah, it's, it's, it is different. It's, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, um, gratifying and and you know it, it becomes it becomes a different thing i guess it helps you sort of disengage from it because because it becomes um something different for readers you know or that or they sort of bring their own readings to it which i love hearing about and finding out you know i read you know every every review you know, professional and non. If someone's written something about my book, or even if it's something like an underpass, I'll go and you know read it. <laughs> um, but because it's just it's it's sort of 
exciting, even if you know you don't understand what they're saying or you completely disagree with it, whatever. It's like I find that really um, a really fascinating part of publishing because the book's no longer, you know, the property of either the person who's written it or people who've been working on it for so long that it's partly theirs as well. Like my editor, my agent, um, you know, close trusted readers. Now it's 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 there for anyone to come along and, and you know, work out what it means. We have a question from uh, somebody who has given their name. It's Jana. And I know Jana. So hello back to you. Thank you for asking a question. Did you find any difference, difficulty in writing uh, when writing a full length novel as opposed to the short stories? Most moments were obviously. Um, you know, much more uh, extended. Yeah, it was the sense that I didn't, you know, you can, if you're writing a short story, that short story might take you years and years to get right, but you sort of know within a few weeks if it's worth pursuing. But with this, it really felt like it could, for the first, I'd say, like eight months to a year, there was a sort of house of cards element to it where, you know, the whole thing could collapse at any moment. So I guess, but but in terms of actual the daily writing there was really no different you're just trying to you know mm. work out mm. the best word to follow the next so that's that's no change but there is that there's a long much longer period where where you're like is this you know a complete act of folly or is it actually worth pursuing um david hevelthwaite asks um do you feel that a lonely man returns to the themes you explored in mothers or is it more of a departure you did mention a bit earlier that there were some similarities in terms of atmospheres of tension and suspense. Yeah, I mean that's something I'm always I'm always interested. I I, I like I like uh, fiction that that has that sort of tensile quality, and that can be about anything. It doesn't it doesn't mean it has to be you know about people getting you know chased or or sort of paranoid fantasists or anything. I think um, there's just something within the, the sentences or the rhythm that, that I respond to and what I want to try and do in my writing. Yeah, I, I think there are themes that sort of recur. None of them, you know, deliberate. They're obviously just hang ups or issues that I'm that I'm that I'm choosing or not choosing, that I'm compelled to uh to Tell us about the hang ups. Um, <laughs> Come on. I don't know. I think it's just those things that get uh those things that seem to that talk to each other between between the stories and and this book certainly sort of ideas of like ideas of dislocation ideas of not feeling you know entirely at home in a in a in a situation or in an environment um you know missed connections i think i think one of the defining things between patrick and robert is that you know i think in a different situation like they could have been they could have been really good friends there's there's um you know, they're, they're quite, uh, they could have been quite sympathetic towards each other and quite helpful for each other if they hadn't, if they'd met under under different circumstances, I think. Oh, interesting. I didn't think that. But I didn't write the book. Um, the, <laughs> the brilliant writer Tony White is here. He says, congratulations, Chris, can't wait to read it. How does your work reviewing fiction brackets you're a very accomplished critic slash book reviewer those brackets inform your own fiction writing you are a very good critic um and would you recommend emerging authors who are just starting out to also write reviews i'll just leap in and say i've written about 
6,000 reviews in my life. I've never written a book. So it can work, you know, you can spend all your perhaps poultry in my case energies on writing reviews, but obviously hasn't sapped your strength kind of Samson style. <laughs> well, thank you, Tony, for that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I mean, I've written reviews for 20, more than 20 years now, just. And it's funny, you know, when Mothers came out, I was asked quite a bit, completely understandably, you know, in retrospect, how does it feel having been a critic for so long to sort of put your head above the parapet, I think was the kind of um, analogy and, and, you know, write, write, write fiction. But in my head, I'd been a fiction writer since I was like, eight um you know the only the only missing part was that i wasn't writing any fiction um <laughs> that was completely you know what i was doing all my friends were like you know knew that was what was happening even though i blatantly wasn't doing it so the, the criticism and fiction again were on sort of parallel tracks like they are they are different i think but they certainly inform one another. i mean you know all the books I've read, whether I was you know, writing a review of them or not, have sort of fed into my own writing. Mm. But I think I think what's helpful about writing a review is that you have to really try and clarify what you think about a book, and you have to sort of make an argument about what you think about a book. And as you know very well, and you have to you know dig that little bit deeper. You can't just put it down and go, "Oh, I really like that," or you know that was okay but it should have done xyz you have to really you know justify your own arguments and, and work out why you think that about it and i think that's valuable in terms of your own writing because you've just got that again not in a particularly conscious way but i think it's all there in the kind of you know mulch that you're drawing on when you're writing fiction because i think a lot of the time when you're writing fiction you're not really you're conscious i guess but you're not um you're not really deliberately drawing on things or thinking oh well i really like what x or y writer did i'm gonna use that but it's but it's all getting thrown up somehow as you're sort of desperately searching for the next uh, for the next word in the mulch it's a real shame critic wise that you can't sometimes just go i really like this like maybe do that for 800 words because it can sometimes you're like i don't know uh, your, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I'm talking about myself here. Uh, we've got two more questions and uh, not so much more time, but we'll, but we'll be quick. Uh, Amber says, you incorporate so much factual detail. What was your system? Keeping track of this alongside your other material. Uh, yeah, just reading like heaps of stuff, laboriously like copying it out into various I use Scrivener, this this you know writing program that lots of people will be familiar with, um, and I'd put loads of it into very intricately designed um, sections and subsections, and then um, most of it I just forgot about and never looked at again. But um, but I think it I think it helped that it was that it was there somewhere. Um, Quite comforting I to, like, to do, yeah. Yeah, and I think I had to read a lot of it and and also sort of forget about it to an extent there was certainly drafts of this book that had that had much more than than needed to be there um as my editor quite rightly told me um and that was that was you know valuable to, to it's better to like have too much and and scrape it away rather than 
you know, not have enough, I think. I've got a last question here, which is a really good question that I didn't get to enough. Uh, it says, congrats, eager to read. It sounds like it's an ode to the big cities like Berlin and London while diving into real life vulnerabilities as a creative. Um, have we managed to reach dangers of those sexy oligarchs and guns? It used to be just fiction and Hollywood. Says, but I'm, in, I'm particularly interested about the idea of the ode to the cities because there is that kind of feeling of exciting possibility, as I said, that he doesn't quite get to, can't quite get to. But there is this feeling of a world of possibility, not just of things that you can do, but just of stories multiplying. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I love Berlin. I love London. I do love, you know, being in a in a city. And obviously that's something that's been very much um, challenged or, or excised over the last year because because um, you can't really gather in in that way or, or you can only in sort of isolated pockets of time between lockdowns but um but yeah i mean i was i was i rode today down to, to i mean hackney and i rode down to peckham and then back to hackney and and yeah just that sense of passing all these you know i was on side streets i was on main roads i was um getting lost quite a lot and consulting my map um but that sense of all these all these lives around you and the fact that you can or could you know wander into a pub or a bookshop or whatever and and have a have a you know a strange a strange enticing encounter um is is one of the thrills of of cities right and it's and it's what sort mm -hmm. of um makes up for for all the difficulties well, the difficulties themselves can be can be thrilling I, I think they i think they demand a lot but that's that's not necessarily a bad thing it kind of keeps you uh keeps you vital in a sense Chris, we have run out of time. Um, I'll just say again how much I enjoyed this book. I really, really loved it. I was completely gripped. You have signed, you actually left the house and went into the actual shop and signed copies, didn't you? So there are signed did, copies for, for people to buy. Um, if you look in the, the, the uh, Q&A, I think there's a link. And also, if you look on the website, uh, you will see lots of other events at the excellent London Review of Books Bookshop, uh, where we long to do events in person again. I will say that they're very tall chairs. I am sitting on a less tall chair that I'm less frightened of slipping off uh, this evening. But it is nothing like congregating outside the LRB bookshop with a glass of warm white wine uh, after a wonderful event. Would please have us back there soon. Chris, thank you so much. I'm sorry that you have to do a more or less virtual book tour. Thank you very much. And thank you to thank all you. our audience. Good night. Happy Easter. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.